Good afternoon, this is Gary Kavner here on TRSI. I'm here today with my friend and colleague Michael Dwyer. It is the 10th of the 5th. Let's get right into this. Big report coming out of Der Spiegel, I think a day or two ago at this point. According to Der Spiegel, the BND, who are Germany's intelligence service, have said that the Chinese pushed the World Health Organization to delay global warnings about the outbreak of the virus at the highest level. They say on January the 21st, China's leader, Xi Jinping, directly asked the WHO chief, Tedros, to limit the information he gave out about human-to-human transmission and to delay putting out the uh, a warning that this had become a pandemic. According to the BND, who again are Germany's intelligence service, they estimate that China's information policy lost the world four to six weeks to fight the virus. Now, Der Spiegel are not the sort of people who publish something willy-nilly. No. They actually have one of the most extensive fact-checking operations in the world. It's not to say they're right, but they would have the sort of links with the BND necessary to find out that information, and they wouldn't publish it if they didn't think it was solid. Now, the WHO for their part, Michael, unsurprisingly, and when I say this, you may wonder, well, Gary, why are we even talking about this? Why are we, indeed? Has said that that didn't happen. Well, then, you see, um, I, I've looked at this story, I've seen this story, and I've, I've read the titles out loud to myself in German because I enjoy the sound of that. And I have to say, Gary, WHO has denied it, China has denied it. There is no story here, I think. There is nothing to see. I think we should move on. I mean, people are coming out and saying that, well, on the second, the on the 22nd of January, which is just a day after this conversation is meant to happen, the WHO mission to China issued a statement saying there was evidence of human-to-human transmission. And they did. Limited evidence of human-to-human transmission that would require more investigation and analysis to understand fully. It's really in about February when... Um, you start seeing them just say, yes, there is human-to-human transmission. You see, I don't know. I mean, this is, the, this is the kind of conspiracy theory thinking that says, well, if you look at it, there was actually uh, centralized state directives at the beginning of January, which in, when China started to hoard PPE materials for no apparent reason. And people are making some kind of a logical jump saying, oh, just because in the first week in January they started desperately hoarding PPE materials, they were afraid of a large uh, viral outbreak on foot of the fact that they'd now established there was human-to-human transmission. That's that's paranoid thinking, Gary. You know, And I hope we're not going to go down the route of thinking things just because they look like they might be true or likely or probable. I mean, it did remind me of something that I, in the, the sort of firestorm of things that the WHO did, I had totally forgotten about. And it was that it was March, it was the 11th of March, before the WHO actually classified COVID-19 as a pandemic. But I had forgotten, there was that period in February, Michael, you may remember, where officials from the WHO were sitting down to be interviewed, and (laughs) the first question they would get is, (laughs) why has this not been declared a pandemic? It was actually declared, if I get it right, um, a an international case for concern. Yes, and then on in March, it was a pandemic. And the WHO, of course, said, well, it's it's not everywhere. Yes. <laughs> yeah, it really is. And it wasn't, probably. Well, maybe it was actually now. We're now starting to think that the thing was in places where it didn't appear to be long before that it apparently was. So maybe it was everywhere. Maybe it is everywhere. Uh, it Oh, it's all... I also, I also the, the Der Spiegel, when they reported this, did a very Der Spiegel thing. It's in the last paragraph of another article about uh, uh, intelligence services were meant to have put together a report on COVID-19. And Der Spiegel's article is on that. And then it just goes at the end. They also said this. No. Most newspapers, that would be an article on its own. One of the things I noticed in the... In the, in, 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 in the which I thought was curious... And maybe it's explicative is Germany's Koch, Robert Koch Institute, which I think is the German institute that deals with infectious diseases and things like that, said that China had failed to reveal all the relevant information at the outset of the epidemic. This is a bit I thought was interesting, leading it to turn to the BND for advice. 
according to a report in the Süddeutsche Zeitung, also a very reputable paper, quoted by the CNA. Now, if it that sounds, I don't know, plausible, but interesting anyway, that the the Koch Institute should actually ask the intelligence service for information and. Maybe that's why the Germans were better prepared than others. To an interesting thing here is that the Koch Institute is not named after the Koch brothers. It's named after uh, Heinrich Hermann Robert Koch. It's in fact it's a German federal government agency responsible yeah. for disease control. So the German disease control institute agency was effectively so concerned about the lack of information coming out of China. But they went to the state intelligence services and just went, lads, what's happening there? They went to the to the local spies and said, any chance you get in some stuff? We, they, they were obviously, obviously they had concerns and they obviously had reasons for those concerns. And they, otherwise they went, now listen, we don't know. We have no clue if in the United Kingdom they went to uh, MI five or MI six for help on this or if the Fran the French went to whoever the French uh, uh equivalent are Israeli went to Mossad. But I think it is interesting that the Germans did this <clears throat> and maybe the Germans then were operating on better advice, acted more promptly. We know from interviews we've done with uh, German doctors that Germany was very well stocked and very well prepared at the level of PPE, more so than other other European countries. So maybe this was because they got an early warning from uh, their intelligence service on the basis that the, their institute just didn't believe the Chinese. In response, it does say, in fairness, to German media reports, Chinese diplomats said the opposite was true, saying the communist country's handling of the virus saved time that was then wasted by other governments, Gary. Uh, the rare high-level diplomatic know-you. Know-you. Not me. You did. I know I know you are, but what am I? But again, the WHO is saying this never happened. Crazy talk. Crazy talk. Some sort of insanity. Der Spiegel not really known for insanity. No. I mean, they're their most staid paper in existence. They are. At, do you remember there was a bit of a scandal with Der Spiegel? They, get, they sent this very famous multi-premiered writer out to write an article about a town in Trump's America. Yes, yeah. And he made it all up. Der Spiegel almost died of embarrassment if if a non-animate thing could display that kind of characteristics. It almost, the sense of shame that radiated out of it. For, I mean, the New York Times, the paper of record, has been caught doing this kind of thing several times. Never had the same response. Der Spiegel almost collapsed with horror and embarrassment. Oh, yeah. Because it is it is supposed to have the the world's most extensive, most perfected uh, fact checking uh, organization in any in any publication in any publication in the world. So it is. This is I suppose the point we're trying to make it. It's a very it's a serious mag. They're unlikely to be doing this on the back of a skiss. And, okay, let's get to the heart of it. Six weeks is a massive amount of time. I mean, how long has this lockdown lasted in its entirety in Ireland? Like Oy, 60 days? It's, yeah. 60 days. Well, not even. I mean, it starts sort of, where are we? We had the month of April, which is 30 days. 10 days in May, which is 40 days. And I would say it started something like... I'd say we had around 50 days of it because we the 11th of March we weren't in lockdown because Punchestown, our Punchestown left. Cheltenham was going on the week of Paddy's, uh, Paddy's week and we weren't in lockdown yet. We were preparing to, we, we did a job in NACE that week, so I think it was that weekend. So I think we're on 50 days in lockdown. Just at the level of closing down international travel, becoming aware at least of the vectors, the potential dangerous vectors, have it six weeks would have made a you know it hope should have made a massive difference, but I mean the the wanton dishonesty, the wanton dishonesty of denying the denying effect, which is effectively what they were doing right up on the end of January, that it was a 
about human transmissibility. And the problem with that is, if you look at Dr. I think, and I really don't want to mischaracterize what the man said because it's a serious thing. The Quite late in the day, was it? We st- are we talking late in February, early March? We were still saying that the expectation in Ireland would be that there would only be sporadic outbreaks. Mm. And it seems, and that was a common expectation in other places as well. And it seems to me that was based on the the notion that even if there was human to human transmissibility, it wasn't massively transmissible. That it wasn't it wasn't happening with great deal of facility. Well, yeah, I mean that's when people said the WHO said there was human to human transmission on January twenty second. The actual report says that there are there are reports of limited human to human transmission which require further analysis in order to confirm the actual nature of. Yeah. doesn't actually just raises the possibility. And one thing I did find interesting, I was reading an article in the Washington Examiner, and for the listener I will include a link to this in the actual uh, notes of the uh, episode. And they were talking about this, this story between Der Spiegel and the WHO and the WHO's denial. And I'd say it's, it's less than a thousand words, somewhere between 500 and a thousand words of an article. And it probably has 20 different links, maybe more than 20 different links to other articles. And the Washington Examiner, for those who don't know, is not a paper on the side of Donald Trump. Because in America, this has become a very political thing. The Republicans are deeply against uh, China and are talking about this as a Chinese issue. And the Democrats are saying that's terribly racist. So the Washington Examiner is not on that side of things. But this article is just like... They point out that uh, the the WHO has said this didn't happen, and then it's just paragraph after paragraph of, but we do know they did this, and they did this, and they misled the WHO, and they blocked experts, and they intimidated doctors, and they destroyed evidence, and they muzzled whistleblowers, and here's a study that says if they acted more quickly, the rest of the world's coronavirus uh, spread would have been greatly reduced, which I'm sure Italy would have greatly enjoyed. Yeah, that's oh, that, that's lovely news. Thanks, folks, for that. Uh, I, you have to say that in <clears throat> in part, China will get away with whatever it get it can get away with. I mean, you and can't really hold it against the Chinese. No, you can't. There has to be a certain way, a, a degree here of culpability about the way that Western countries treat the Chinese and they react to the Chinese. Do you see? I mean, it's not a big story, but. There was an interview in Canada with the foreign minister, Justin Trudeau's foreign minister. He was asked on two occasions during an interview to thank Taiwan because Taiwan had just sent them free gratis and for nothing half a million surgical masks. The bastards. <clears throat> the bastards. Now, I think at the end of last month, or maybe it was the end of March, China had, I believe, sold Canada a large stock of PPA, a large portion of which turned to be out, turned out to be unusable. And I don't know if it was the foreign minister or the prime minister, Justin Trudeau, or both, were fulsome in their th- their praise and thanks to China for having so done. Anyway, in an interview with um, the foreign minister, he's in, on two occasions asked to thank Taiwan. He refuses twice. He won't even say the word Taiwan. Now, to be fair... A day later, maybe Justin Trudeau actually did thank Taiwan. So, fair dues to Trudeau. And he is, I believe at this stage, the only one of the G7 to mention Taiwan or to thank Taiwan for this kind of this kind of activity. But that's the mindset. They won't even mention the word. They won't even... A simple thing like saying, it's thanks... Because they are, in some sense, intimidated by or frightened by China. We know that Taiwan sent the WHO a letter uh, with their concerns about COVID-19 very early, I think in, in December, yeah. like late December. After um, Christmas, around, around after, Christmas. I think, it was, I think it was the last day of December, actually, uh, asking, say, stating their concerns that they had some thoughts that there was human-to-human transmission, but also asking the WHO, what should we do here? Like, yeah. how can we protect our own citizens? And the WHO admitted that the to the Economist that they didn't respond to that letter because they thought doing so would upset China. 
Uh, but the WHO's entire purpose is to safeguard the health of states or to provide them with the information they need to do so. And it openly says that, it, you know, we thought it would upset the Chinese vaguely, so we just we left them to their own devices. No. Now, in the end, that actually turned out to be fantastic for Taiwan because they got a really strong handle on this very quickly. Now, the problem for us and other places like us is we have relied very strongly on WHO advice. And there's one piece of advice in particular, I think, Gary, that we, we, we've probably referred to before, which was there was a discussion, which this is reported in the press anyway, there was a discussion whether or not travel restrictions with China should be proposed in order to, ki- to try to contain the spread of the virus. Yeah, and we do know that the Chinese delegations in the WHO fought back very strongly against any travel restrictions against China, saying that they were unnecessary and racist. Interestingly enough, Michael, yeah, when the Wuhan outbreak happened, China shut down uh, national airlines to Wuhan. So you couldn't get a domestic flight from China to Wuhan or out of Wuhan, but didn't shut down international travel. Yeah, but Gary, you have to understand, you're talking about a completely different biodynamic trajectory vector of infection, uh, which obviously would manifest itself in a whole variety of uh, different and contingent fashions that we really couldn't speculate upon here. But it would be racist, 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 racist. And why do you hate China? Or something like that. Listen, we were told, I mean, along with the mask stuff, but consistently, there are certain pieces of advice which appeared consistently. Travel restrictions are not useful. Travel restrictions won't work. Travel restrictions are a waste of time. Do you remember Pascal saying that we couldn't have travel restrictions? Because imagine if we had got it and the Italians put travel restrictions on us and how bad that would have felt. (laughs) We would have been so hurt. I remember hearing at the time. I think we talked about it at the time. I was like, that is legitimately the reasoning of a child. Like, that's not a political point. Also, the Italians would have had those restrictions in place in seconds. (laughs) God bless them, they would. And they wouldn't have even been sorry about yeah. it. They would have just been like, lads, like, come they, on now. If they thought this was coming in from France, there would have been snipers, Gary, on the Alpine passes. The tanks would have rolled out. Christ almighty, lads. My boy. But they were able to get away with this because WHO advice, WHO, that was the mantra on so many things which have later gone on a journey or had an evolution of uh, idea and this and we've changed our minds about them we know that for example china was very successful at containing it within wuhan and when the first because first of all it wasn't just the planes as we know now gary they didn't just stop internal flights nobody got in or out of wuhan Mm. wuhan locked down nobody went from nobody got not got on a train and even afterwards when the whole thing was contained if you want to buy a ticket or if you want to you're, and you were quarantined and you were temperature checked and all that. New Zealand, countries that have been successful. Taiwan closed down travel concerns. It's, it's interesting. New Zealand you, closed down travel concerns. You say New Zealand because we recently had the country's chief medical officer, Dr. Tony Houlihan, on uh, the Shana Rourke show. Yes. And he was asked why we weren't doing as well as New Zealand. And he said that no valid direct comparison could be drawn with New Zealand. He said a lot of stuff in the article that it was quite interesting. I don't know if you heard it, because he speaks in a way that's it sounds like he knows what he's talking about, and he's calm and he's confident. But when you actually listen to what he's saying, a lot of just... He just... It was a very good reminder that he is, in fact, a civil servant, and that is his primary job designation. In the language of the young people, it was the kind of interview that he he, he was making statements that you you would you'd like to interrupt. Could I get a link to that, please? If that's a fact, could we get a link? Could, you know, to be fair to, to Sean O'Rourke, Sean O'Rourke was asking him about line from him and other parts of the health establishment, the recommendation that nursing homes remove any bans they had on visitors coming in. Yeah. And he said... Shannon asked him, was his advice to blame, basically? And he said, no, we uh, we made absolutely the right call. We know the visitors didn't bring it in. Well, 
they may know that in some cases the tracking has identified uh, staff. But here's the thing with with the um, I I heard it and my immediate thought was with the amount of asymptomatic infected, you can't know that. You can know that there were people who had symptoms of COVID nineteen, and you can assume that they were the causes of outbreaks. But because there's so many asymptomatic people who can infect others, you wouldn't be sure they actually created uh, the outbreak. No, because you, you, you simply you don't, don't know who has it. You also don't know when the outbreaks begin, because no, you it, don't. we don't know that even old people can have it asymptomatically. There was actually an interesting thing because then. He implied that staff had brought it in. But any time Sean O'Rourke asked him for clarification on this, like explicitly asked him, did the staff bring it in? He would say things like, well, you know, there's certainly a risk with people moving between facilities. Yes. And he wouldn't just give the, um, the exact thing. He did also say that at the meeting they had, where they had decided to come out and say that there was no need for bans on visitors, that there was no dissenting voices at that meeting. Right. But then he also said that a couple of days later, they reviewed the evidence and decided that now was in fact the correct time to change our view on that. So they went from no dissenting voices to a total reversal of policy in a couple of days with nothing in between. Mm. Which would strike me as... Somewhat odd. It's a bit oddly. I mean, there would also be, and this may perhaps be part of the reason this answer is a bit awkward, that if that advice had in fact been catastrophically wrong, yes, that would seem to indicate that that part of the health service would bear some of the blame for that. And as we know from Simon Harris who said we've made no mistakes no mistakes no, no mistakes no, no. which is weird because we're doing about as well as countries that are coming out and saying we've made terrible mistakes terrible mistakes with relation to nursing homes like sweden just a, like sweden who are saying their system is correct but they really missed Drop. the boat or dropped the ball dropped on the, ball. the nursing homes and they freely say that which is i would in some ways actually probably comforting in that the government will accept they've made a mistake but actually, I, it's, I'll put a link to it in the notes of this episode, and it's the entire thing is about 20 minutes long, but they talk about the nursing homes for about 10 minutes, and it is it is um, fascinating. But I can't, I can see no way he can actually back up what he's saying, because he's, he's, not, he's not saying we think, or this is likely. He is saying we objectively know that this is the case. For a careful man, it's an odd thing well, to do. Well, I mean, it's a careful man who... If he says the wrong thing, could be blamed for over half of the deaths in this country. Yeah. So. It's not a fun place to be. No. And, I mean, we do have little kind of things that came out that would indicate this was perhaps a bit more complicated than we're being told. We remember that the HSE, during this period, was saying that it's, when it was talking about the nursing homes and other things closing, it said its primary purpose was to stop panic. Panic, Which, that was, yes, they were very Panic was the, the real panic. enemy, not not the thing that would kill people. Absolutely, panic was going to just, just destroy the country. There's kind of panic in the streets of Dublin, London, New York. It was going to be horrible. But also, Tag Daly, who's the chief executive of Nursing Homes Ireland, Sir, has... Tag. Tag, what should I call him? Tag. Tag. Like an Englishman, Gary, like an Englishman. Tag, man. Well, it's not the first time someone has said that about me. Uh, who is the chief executive of Nursing Homes Ireland, says, uh, you said publicly, that in the early days of the crisis, nursing homes were not a priority of the government or the HSE because they thought that the level of care those people would need was too complex to deal with quickly. So we have stopping panic is our primary objective and the head of the Nursing Homes Ireland saying that, well, nursing homes weren't their priority. And yet, at the same time, we were being told that certain kinds of people were going to be far more vulnerable than others, and those were precisely the kinds of people in nursing homes and care homes. We know, well, we seem to know, I'm loath to say we know anything about this whole experience, yet that it seems to have happened in Germany and seems to perhaps have been one of the reasons why they're death toll is considerably lower than ours, is that there were some pretty bad outbreaks early on in the 
game in Germany in care homes. But they responded pretty quickly. They imposed very strict protocols and provisions. And they were very, very well stocked with PPE and with staff, neither of which was taken away from them by the government, which was nice of the Germans to not take away staff or PPE from the care homes, unlike here. So precisely the kind of people which they knew were going to be at risk it seems to me that the reaction, if anything, should have been hysterically the other way around. Cocooning, which has become the phrase, that there should, there should have been very hard and fast rules about the kind of like HACCP and care rules, proper PPE, that's where the PPE should have gone, that's where the care should have gone, and that's I mean, where I think the intention that's, that's, should have been made. That's really all we can say on this, given Tony Hulhan's propensity to send strongly worded letters that are definitely not legal threats to people who say things about him. I was like unaware that, and remain like unaware that, of such uh, a thing. That patient know. advocate who didn't like his, uh, didn't think his handling of the uh, cervical check scandal was terribly good. You know the one that um, Labour said that he needed to uh, needed to explain his uh, appalling treatment of? Uh, I know nothing about this. This is all news to me if it is indeed news. And not just a strange fiction dreamt up by Gary in a desperate attempt to be sued by somebody that I don't want to be sued by. He sent her a letter on department-headed notepaper, Michael, warning that she could expect a very strong response if those sort of remarks were repeated publicly. Allegedly. Mm, baseless allegations which are at variance with the facts. That kind of thing. and I, and, and He wanted a mediated discussion in relation to the false beliefs she made hold against him. Well, a mediated discussion, Gary, is always what you want. Reasonable people should always be happy to go for a mediated discussion. Absolutely. And, I mean, the strongest uh, response possible is definitely not a way of saying, I will sue you into fucking oblivion. You know how these conversations make me feel, Gary? Conversations of defamatory and untrue statements? Yes, and nightmares of arriving on the height. The courts of the high, of the steps a of the high court. A patient advocate called Lorraine Walsh, who was diagnosed with cervical cancer after receiving inaccurate test results. Yes, that kind of thing. Well, I mean, I we, I mean, you know, obviously we couldn't repeat what she said. No, um, because as we said, we couldn't. We couldn't. Absolutely not. I'm sure it's still online. If someone of a certain disposition wanted to see what she actually said about his capabilities, but I couldn't possibly comment on that. There's there are times, Gary, when I wonder if you're on Team Ireland. <laughs> I have a problem with heights, Gary. I, I, I see people hanging over precipices, precipice, even in a, a cartoon on television. My legs go wobbly, so, you know. Let's keep away from the edge, shall we? Of course. Of and course. also, let's cheer on Team Ireland, by the way. Because I think that Ireland being the number seven in the fatality ratings in the world or number eight, is actually a terrifically good result. Ah, that's Con- just because we're such good counters, Michael. Exactly. We're, we're in fact, <laughs> I mean, this is the latest one, and I'm not, I, I shouldn't laugh, maybe it'll turn out it was true. Uh, the One of the latest ones now is that we're actually wildly overcounting, and that anybody who's dying, who's over the age of 80, is being put down as a COVID death. I'm not exactly sure why, I think it's in order to justify the lockdown, because if people weren't dying, then the people would get dissatisfied with the lockdown and the, the, the carnage it has caused. But this is one of the things now in social media that everybody is, that there's widespread puffing up of the figures, that the, the government actually is increasing the figures of number of people that are dying from this disease under its watch. As I say, the quite why? has escaped me but maybe one of the dear listener can give us clarification on that i believe we are we are applying the who's advice on counting are we i believe so well, that's what they're saying gary that's what they're saying but in reality i mean we've we have seen cases on social media where people just died of old age and the doctor for no reason at all slapped on the covid because Possibly also, it was speculated online, and we are not speculating, but this was one of the reasons. There was some kind of bonus or benefit from care homes or hospitals for every COVID fatality they had. That sounds odd to me, but, you know. 
Maybe, I don't know. This uh, It's a funny old time on, online, Gary. It's a funny old time. We did say, we said during the week that we were going to talk about the 1619 project by the New York Times. Originally, we had thought that there wouldn't be another bombshell report about China. I like the phrase bombshell report. Boom. I'm sure we can be very impressed by it and then go totally back to ignoring anything China might have done, like the organ harvesting. that They haven't even really bothered to hide, which is actually also kind of impressive. So we thought we'd be able to give more time to this, but we'll still go into it. So the 1619 Project is a project by the New York Times magazine, started in 2019. Um, It's led by a woman called Nicole Hannah-Jones, who is reporter for the New York Times. And the point of it, now this thing isn't, it started off as a ma- as a magazine special, but then it became podcasts, pieces in the New York Times, uh, the actual paper. And then it was also developed into a full educational curriculum with the Pulitzer Committee, which is weirdly enough, not linked to the Pulitzer Prize. Yes. And it basically wants to re-examine the history of America and put slavery at the centre of it. And it argues that slavery is central to every part of the American experience. And it just won, it, we were talking about it because it won a Pulitzer Prize for commentary uh, this year. Um, last week, I think, actually. Mm-hmm. But the problem with it is... And I say this more as someone who's very interested in history than someone who's political and disagrees with its political line. It's garbage. Well, now, it's, it's you're looking at dozens of articles. Not all of them are bad. Some of them are actually quite good. I, I, I just, I, I, Gary, I think we should slightly contextualize this. Somebody listening to it might think, other than sort of a vague curiosity in, about politics in the United States, why would anybody over here care about this? There is one reason why we should care, which is, Increasingly, the optic through which we observe different kinds of social phenomenon is informed by the way that the narrative and the discourse is formed in the United States. Increasingly, the way people think and talk about race and racism in Europe is framed by the the language and the discourse of the United States, even though the two uh, continents have radically different histories, even within Europe, countries have radically different histories and experiences of the issue. So what's on the menu today as regards understanding history, understanding social dynamics, understanding societal problems and ways to deal with those issues in the United States is going to be on the menu somewhere soon in in Europe, whether it's in Ireland or the UK, the EU, at national level, whatever it is. This is this is coming our way. So you're saying, Gary, I mean, it, it, the list, it, it starts off as a, well, it, it's as a, a collection of essays, which are in themselves interesting. Yeah, I mean, and it expands to something which you can no longer say is, is all bad because there's simply so much of it. I mean, they were even having live events about it. And there's podcasts and things like that, if you're interested in that sort of archaic technology. Now, again, I don't know if it's important or if it should be important, but it was, a, a, I think, an editorial decision or certainly a policy decision made that the principal contributors at the level of the history and the essays would be African-Americans. Mm. So the decision would be made on the basis of their race rather than any perceived qualification in their field. Yeah, I mean, it was also supported by the Smithsonian. Yes. Which is a very serious institution. It was. Let's just put the problems in. Let's. My favourite one on opening this was the historian Leslie Harris. And Leslie Harris, highly respected historian, the New York Times hired her to fact-check the essays in the project prior to their publication. Yes. And the problem was, is that she did fact-check them. And... She then later had to write an article, because I think this may have... Historians, even those who are on side with this politically, because there is a very political element to this, didn't view it as terribly historically accurate. So I would imagine that Harris suffered some professional issues because of this, because historians, even highly political ones, tend to really care about getting facts right. 
So she wrote, she publicly wrote an article herself saying that she had vigorously argued against certain things that this said and said that she was concerned that critics would use the overstated claims to discredit the entire thing. Which yeah. Was, which, you know, she was Sometimes wrong. if you study the past, you can tell the future. Yeah. But the, the headline of, of her article, which I'll throw down into the, the thing, is I helped fact check the 1619 project. The Times ignored me. And her argument is that they made mistakes, but the attacks from the critics are more dangerous. But in doing so, she also accepts that the New York Times brought in a historian. And then when that historian said, what you're saying is it's not historically accurate. It's not a misinterpretation. It's just not right. They just totally ignore it. Mm -hmm. Now, Harris, her speciality is slavery. So, and I believe she is African-American. So you have a black professor of slavery telling you that what you are writing is not correct. And you're like, ah, it's close enough though, isn't it? (laughs) Yeah. Which, I mean, later on, a group of historians wrote a public letter to the Times and said that it was a displacement of historical understanding by ideology and tore into it very, very reputable historians several of whom had also won Pulitzer Prizes. But the 1619 Project, well, actually only the first essay, which is weirdly enough the worst one from a historical point of view, won the Pulitzer Prize for commentary, whereas the people who were complaining about it had won Pulitzer Prizes for history. Yeah, uh, like... <clears throat> the premise, or at least an important premise to do for why this needed to be done was, and that, if I can find the quote here, that slavery is often mischaracterized in the United States, in American media, as a marginal event in American history and has little influence on the present day. Now, I'm not in America, and I'm not in American media, but, you know, Gary, for someone who you're watching from the outside, watching politics from the outside, watching the cultural artifacts from the outside, the idea that slavery was a marginal event in American history is not a one that would have struck me as obvious. It seems to me the United States is obsessed with race and that a discussion of race always, always returns to the subject of slavery. And people on the left in the United States, for all of my lifetime listening and reading uh, about American politics, there's just this one constant theme, which is we need to have a conversation about race. And it's always said in the tone of people who have noticed that there's never been a conversation about race. When it seems that I think that, in fact, for good or for ill, since the Second World War, the American, the United States has not stopped talking about race. In fact, they've probably never talked as much about race as they do now, and it really doesn't seem to be helping. Richard Nixon, I think, with uh, Moynihan, I don't know if it was Richard to Moynihan or Moynihan to Nixon, said in the early seventies, and it was Nixon was responsible for the uh, for several of the most important pieces of sort of uh, civil rights legislation. Uh, said the whole issue of race in the United States could do with a period of benign neglect. Now, I'm sure if you're involved in politics in the United States and you're on the left and if you're a person of colour, you would find that notion difficult to deal with. But I don't know. I think just this 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 notion that the United States needs to have a conversation about race, It's I think it's not that it isn't having the conversation. Maybe it's just that it hasn't had the conversation that these people would like with the results that they want. And they're not... They, everything is seen through the uh through this optic of race and there are certain uh, assumptions that seem to be operant in this from the, the bits and pieces of the essays and bits of commentary that i had one is racism is a structural part of american society eradicable and irremovable michael the the project when it originally came out the essay they're talking about and this they did correct although they said they wouldn't correct anything the, that essay, when it came out, said that the purpose of the American Revolution, not the Civil War, the American Revolution, mm-hmm. was in was so that the colonies could break away from Britain 
in order to ensure that slavery could continue. Yeah. It said that was what the founder's primary objective was, which is part of what the historians took uh, issue with because <clears throat> they obviously know far more about this than me, but they explain that based on where it started and the people involved, that just wasn't likely. Well, it's it's strikingly unlikely because if nothing else, as to, to my knowledge, Massachusetts, uh, which was you know the whole Paul Revere and all that kind of stuff, and Pennsylvania, which was founded by William Penn, it was a Quaker state. Both Quakers were... being famously against slavery, and in fact being a large part of the driving force in Britain that got rid of it. And in, what do you mean in 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 Massachusetts? Both of them were free states, but more than that, listen, there are very few cases where you can say any single great historical moment is down to one thing but i've always had a bit of an interest in american history i've read a a fair bit of about it over the years and it's perfectly possible because it is true that historians sometimes do have odd weird cultural blind spots where they all come from the same place and they all fail to notice the same thing but the notion that in 1776 Britain was being convulsed by anti-slavery activity, which was inevitably going to lead to the destruction of the slave trade, and then not just the slave trade, what did lead to the destruction of the slave trade, that slavery had pretty well gone in Britain by this time. But to the uh, destruction of the slavery in the United States, in the 13 original colonies, and that was... I, I, I haven't heard that speech made. I haven't seen that letter written I, where people are saying, give me slavery or give me death. Uh, well, maybe you're just saying that because one of the people who signed this letter was your favourite American historian. Oh, McPherson. McPherson signed it, yeah. For those who don't know, George McPherson, James McPherson even wrote a, uh, a book in 1980s called Battle Cry of Freedom, the Civil War era. Which Brilliant. is uh, considered to be absolutely fantastic. But I did like the Irish, sorry, the, the New York Times gets this article from these historians basically saying, you have made basic historical errors. We would like you to issue corrections. They also say we would ask for the removal of these mistakes from any materials destined for use in schools. Because again, yeah. this the Pulitzer Center has put together an actual curriculum based on this. So with this the Smithsonian. So with the Smithsonian and with the New teacher, York you Times. Say, well, New York Times, Smithsonian. I mean, how can it be anything? The Pulitzer Center, of talk- course it's correct. We're talking about elementary school texts here. I think elementary and secondary school texts. Yeah. Um, I was surprised. I, in secondary school, I could see, but I was I was really surprised that considering the, the, the complexity of stuff, that this would be actually used at elementary level, but they are actually for element, elementary well, level. Yeah, what they say, Michael, get them when they're young. Absolutely. But it also said, we ask that the Times reveal fully the process through which the historical materials were assembled, checked, and authenticated. So, not the kind of layer you generally see. These are basically historians saying that we think this is serious enough that we want you to publicly say how you actually decided to say these things. And the New York Times response is basically, well, we think that's very lovely of you, but we disagree. Yeah. That we've made any mistakes. <laughs> I mean, like, you know, I just got... On the, on I, which I admire. Like, five of the top historians in this subject have written to you and went, you've bollocks this. And you go, ah, but have we? Yeah. Uh, McPherson, right? James McPherson, for start. He's exactly the wrong kind of person to be talking about. He's an 83-year-old white man. He did write The Battle of Freedom, which anybody who wants... A single volume history of the American Civil War, I would absolutely recommend it. It's not just wonderfully researched, it's beautifully written, it's great humanity in it as well. Now, it's worth pointing out, Macpherson is not a conservative, he is a man of the left, and always has been a man of the left. That was the interesting thing, that all of a lot of the historians who spoke publicly against this book were interviewed by the World Socialist website. Uh, that's brilliant. This is a whole new discovery for me. The word story. I was saying to, to you, Gary, I had come across it some time ago by accident, and had gotten to it simply because when I I misread the the link the 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 link address, and I thought it was the Wall Street Journal, the WSJ, 
And I thought, oh, WSJ, that's great. And Wall Street Journal is always good for a for a reliable stand there. It's actually, it's a very, it's like stepping back into sort of 1940s American communism. It's just like Marxists in tweed suits with pipes going, well, we might be wrong, but we're bloody serious about yeah, it. Yeah, really and here are the arguments. The kind of thing that you could imagine that these days, all the people on the blacklist would be reading it. Regardless of ideological differences, they get some really good people to write for them. They do, and they get, I mean, the stuff is well done. But my point is, my first one addresses a couple of issues, which, are, from what I, 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 read, I, I read the one of the pieces on the Civil War, first of all, it treats um, slavery as if slavery was a uniquely American sin, rather than being um, a global a sin which has happened throughout the world and throughout history. Also, there is a kind of implication that it is a, it is a, a uniquely or peculiarly white sin, which is obviously untrue also. I think you, Gary, do you remember when it was on first time, but you may have come across the artefact. There was a, a book by Haley called Roots, which was made into a hugely successful television series. I don't know if you're aware of it. I'm, I've never seen it, but I am aware of it. Now, there's a scene at the very beginning of Roots, which I think is problematic in the sense that I think it's formed the historical understanding for an awful lot of people about how slavery was conducted in the 18th and 19th century uh, when it came to getting slaves. It's a bunch of people get off a boat, a bunch of British people probably, uh, somewhere in West Africa, on, and they go into go go inland, and they basically trap people, and bring them all. Now, slave hunting probably was reliable for a percent, two percent of the total number of slaves. The best book I read on this was a, I I fairly sure it was Hugh Thomas wrote it. It's called uh, A History of the Atlantic Slave. Just the slave trade, is it? The story of the Atlantic slave trade, single volume thing, really, really, really rattling good book, and he goes through the nature of the evolution of slavery, which was a business principally organised and profited by the large slaving slave trade owning empires of West Africa, who made a hell of a lot of money out of it. Also, it had been for a very long time just. Part of the local economy that you go, you you, you went to war and uh, with a nearby crowd, and wh- wh- if you won the war, you captured their people, and you sold them into slavery, which is exactly what the Romans did for a very long time in Europe. By the way, also we're pointing out that that author was also a member of the Labour Party. Oh yeah, this is what I've actually found quite interesting about the the New York Times. Pushback has come from both the right and the left. And actually, the better pushback has come from the left. That is true, because they've tended to be like, we really support this project's aims, but that's why you need to actually say things that are right and that other people can't go, well, that's horseshit. Yeah, the uh, the right, the criticism of the right is just tend to be, oh, it's just the usual... It's just attacking America. Hating America stuff. Now, one of the points, and this is a, an appointment, it's an important one for, that that people like uh, MacPierce, James McPherson and others will make. The American Civil War is a really, really weird thing mm. in many, many ways. It's a horrendously bloody experience for a start. It lasts a very long time, the late, recent theories, because it's for re- it, it's, a, it's a war about regime change and regime change wars last, last long times. I got interested in why the American Civil War, and I went and I read fairly widely about it, including McPherson's book at the time. And after reading for around 18 months, I, I remember saying to my sister, by the way, I've come to a conclusion. What caused the American Civil War? She's looked at me sort of slightly. Yeah, oh, yeah. Well, then shoot. And I said, slavery. She mm. said, wow, that's original. Well, yes, there's, the, the, there's the bell curve effect there Yeah. of slavery to state rights and then back <laughs> to slavery. All the way. With, in, with tariffs and agriculture versus industry and the Yankee economy and all sorts of things happening in between. However, what McPherson and others will say is, yes, it was a war about lots of different things. But it was also a war in large part because the, the southern states wanted to admit uh, Kentucky 
as a, as a slave state and the northerners wanted to admit a free state and this was going to in a sense define the future of the united states whether it would be a predominantly slave or predominantly free and ultimately tens of thousands of young men died not maybe initially but for many of them slavery was a very big issue they died for other people's freedom not if anything abstract my like the defense of the union and the notion that everybody in the united states was irrevocably and eradicably racist and that slavery was this key central institution to the nature of state kind of ignores the fact that the state went to war the country went to war convulsed itself lost huge amounts of treasure thousands of lives a president by in as well inter alia and after five years lost uh had done itself no it then lost the great opportunity in the in reconstruction the tragedies the lost opportunity that happens in the next 30 years where uh, african americans are systematically excluded from citizenship from power from democracy from the possibility of creating their own lives and they're economically alienated well that was another thing that the that the 1619 that historians took issue with it was how it talked about abraham lincoln um I'm pretty sure it explicitly called him a racist and made certain comments about him and his views on black people mm-hmm. that historians just that's not it's not true even when you look through his private letters he didn't have a modern sensibility towards race no. but he also is not what you're saying but there was actually an interesting thing the um the world socialist website actually wrote a letter to the american historical review at the yeah. end of last month that got published and it's actually pretty good. It, uh, it's our it's our new favorite website. It if you like like old school Marxist class based structural analysis, where it could be terribly wrong, but it mm-hmm. at least has. Like so the problem with a lot of like the the postmodernist and feminist stuff is there's no theory behind it that you can actually attack. None of it's ever falsifiable. Whereas these guys at least went. And now we are see look, and this is the application, and it you know if it's wrong, then maybe we're wrong. And you think there is actually a concrete thing there, but um, they're talking about how Marxists don't like race based perspectives, um, and they argue that race based perspectives are theoretically and politically intellectually untenable. And it's not just race; it's gender, sexual preference, ethnicity as well. You know, all of the categories, all of the 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 identity politics gets thrown into the pot they it's, don't it's like one us. of the things I, I like about the old school Marxists that because of their focus on class affairs and the importance of class they've been able to see the disintegrating effect of identity politics yeah and they've known it was a threat way before most other people did because to them it breaks down one's ability to group people into class and then for the lower classes to fight for their their rights now they published a couple of interesting articles one was by uh, uh, James Oaks, who is um, another fine historian, fine historian, professor at the City University in New York. Anyway, he he wrote, and I think this is an this is a really important point. I mean, central to the discourse about race in the United States, and increasingly the way we talk about race here, because I hear people talking about, and it's basically mimicking the memes of the left in the in the states about the nature and structural nature that it is. Hannah Jones' assertion basically is that anti-black racism is in the DNA of the United States. Now, this is something that you hear from, like one of the most prominent voices in the United States on these issues is Tanahishi Coates, who is regarded as the second coming when it comes to writing essays and being beautiful and anguished and black in the United States. And if you want to know about John McQuarter and Glenn Lowry. If you give them a Google, they talk about him quite a bit. John McWhorter <laughs> tries not to talk about him and then fails. And he's always good value. John Worter is McWhorter, very brilliant uh, uh, linguistics professor in, uh, I think, Columbia in New York. Um, young black professor, if it's important. But anyway, the point that Chatterton makes criticizing Coates and Oakes makes here is 
There's nothing you can do if it's in the DNA. If it's in the DNA, there's nothing you can do. What can you do? Alter your DNA. I did, um, I don't know if you saw it, but the World Socialist website, their response to the Times, the 1619 project winning the Pulitzer Prize. Yeah. The Times 1619 project is damned with faint praise. They received the Pulitzer Prize for personal commentary, not historical writing. Mm-hmm. And it starts with the line, there are occasions when an award is a humiliation. <laughs> One in the category of commentary, that is, opinion writing. Anyway, listen, guy. before we go, I, I, I know I wasn't supposed to do this, but I just want to advert to one little thing which is happening or not happening rather in our little island here we have been talking a lot in the last couple of weeks on and off about the leaving cert now the leaving cert has now been sent the way of old god in that it has been postponed sine die and one of the reasons gary we know we've been we've been hearing a lot of demands for from the minister who has finally flop flipped and flip flopped on this is certainty is this not the case, Gary, that people are looking for certainty? Well, now, Gary, <laughs> the minister has delivered certainty in spades. So there will probably be a leaving cert to be sat, but we don't know when. We don't know will it be in the, will it be in the autumn or the winter, maybe in January. We, we think, but we don't know for certain that it won't be any use for CAO, but at least not this year anyway. But now there's discussion that it's possible that you might be able to do some subjects by predictive grading or what they're calling predictive grading uh, and other subjects by exam. But if that's the case, then for that to work for the CEO, then some of the exams will have to be anticipated. So it may be that there will be an exam, some a small, because the numbers are going to be smaller, that it will now become possible to run the exams in September or maybe the fact that the universities will have to push back and the CEO but we don't know we have a degree of certainty that there will be universities and there will be schools but that's about as much then we have the question of the new system and as we have at the moment 61,000 people sitting in the Leaving Cert oh by the way as regards those people who are doing extra subjects that haven't been I don't have are not registered with schools and therefore don't have any kind of history or people who are registered outside of schools they're external students maybe mature students or people doing one or two or more exams for reasons with the CEO or for a course application uh, well we don't know what will happen with them um for people who didn't do mocks or for schools that don't have exams well we don't know what's going to happen with them also, everyone is getting graded. Schools are going to be graded on a curve based on their average performance. Schools will be, but not people. Well, I mean, to say schools will be, it means people are going to be. Yeah, but they're going to be hammered will back be thrown, into line. They'll be they'll be thrown into the. Into so the effectively, barrel. this means that if you are a student in a school that has poor results, let's say because it's in a disadvantaged community, your results could be brought down to be in line with the results. And if you're in a high-performing school, your results could be brought up. So what I'm saying is, if your children are in the Institute on Leeson Street, fantastic for you. If your children are going to school Isagon or school Owen, absolute tip-top, super-duper. Now, the department has said that this will be done in a way that's fair. Yeah. Now, we we should observe here, Gary... That we don't know, for example, how long back they're going to look for the curve. Is it going to be all the leaving certs ever done? Is it going to be the last five years? Is it going to be the last ten years? Well, I mean, you could have a situation where if a school that's been static for a long time, like they have a curve that's similar every year, is going to be probably in a fairly good position because there's not that much movement. It would be interested to see how much movement there is on average on those curves across the years. And if you get... Outliers even, and... even if you're even if you're fair to the school, in other words, even if you get well fair in the sense that you replicate more or less the set of results that the school gets, there's no guarantee 
that the A's and B's and C's awarded are going to actually match to the individuals to whom they should be given. Because that's all this will do. This will give you this will give you the average results to the to the school. But whether or not that those results will attach to the right people individually within the class is a whole other subject. So you have kids now in the wonderfully certain position of because they've been given this certainty, Gary, finally, certainty, who are on her sending emails and ringing up teachers saying, Sir Miss, should I do the leaving or should I do this? And teachers, your teachers are doing, Gary? They're digging holes as deep and as far away from telephones and internet as they possibly can because they have no fucking clue how to respond. Genuinely, they don't know what to say. They said, well, I don't know. I mean, I was talking to a teacher that she said, she gave an example of a student she has. She said, the chap is not brilliant, he's, but he's a, he's a good worker. And the fact is, he's the kind of chap if they had a, the kind of leave insert now you have with two hours, but wider question choice because it's only two hours. You've got your DBQ, you've got your, your RSR, he'll score highly on those. His results up to now would not be great, but after this he will basically work to the exam and he will work to the question, he will learn it off, he will write the he'll prep all his questions and he'll get those. And he, in the exam, he could well get, say, a 75, 76, something like that. If you're going to predict on the basis of his past work, you just wouldn't do that. But on the fair, but then in fairness, could she say, well, I think that probably he will, but then she has no way of knowing. Also, the idea of, at the very least, they're terrified that they won't allow them just to grade them A, B, C, D, whatever, but rather to give percentage points, she says, it's going to be a nightmare. Teachers will have nervous breakdowns. Now, it's also... Just to add to the certainty, while the TUI has said it's going to cooperate, the last we heard was yesterday, the ASTI were still talking about this. They haven't actually agreed. So, and nobody has actually gone back to their members. Neither of the unions has gone back to their members yet, just for even more certainty. So I'm just, as my final comment for Sunday is, it's great that finally the students have been given certainty. They've, that they don't have to worry anymore. I think it's a bang-up job, another bang-up job brought to you by this government and the coalition. Well done, them. And we will see you Wednesday.